there's a wonderful story of of this new MP sitting beside Churchill in the legislature and looking out and saying, ah, isn't it wonderful to to look out on the on the enemy? And Church said, son, that's the opposition. The enemy's all around you. I didn't realize, like I'd always thought the church was a bit, held in a bit of disgrace by society, but to tell you the truth, compared to politics, church ministers were held with a lot of respect. <laughs> the The ethical system was, was quite different, too, because in... Politics in church can be pretty nasty too, but there was always an ethical norm you, you you could appeal to. You know the Bible or what would Jesus do or anything like that. You had this sort of okay, would Jesus do that? In politics, there's no real uh, ethical. The ethical norm really is what's going to get us reelected. You're listening to On the Record Offscript, and I am your host, Mark Coffin. For the summer, we're taking a break from the standard episodes of the podcast that follow the career path of a Nova Scotia MLA. And for the remainder of the summer, we're going to continue sharing some of the long-form interviews of conversations we had with former Nova Scotia MLAs to help you get to know a bit more about what the interview sounded like and who these people are. This week's featured interview is with Mark Parent. Mark Parent was a former MLA for the Valley Riding of Kings North, and a former environment minister in the progressive conservative government of Rodney MacDonald. He also served as a government backbencher during John Hamm's years as premier. Before entering public life, he was a Baptist church minister. In our interview, Mark shared some very candid reflections on his time in politics. Some of the most notable things that came up in our conversation, he shares about the difference he experienced wading into politics of the Baptist church compared to the politics of the provincial government, We asked him about a piece of legislation that he championed while Environment Minister called the Environmental Goals and Sustainable Prosperity Act. We asked him about that because it's one of the initiatives that came up again and again as an example of the kind of work that can get done in and around the legislature when people on all sides of the house work with one another, as well as with community groups outside of the legislature. So he told us more about what was happening behind the scenes with those other parties in order to make it work. And he also talks about the difference between working under John Hamm's and Rodney McDonald's PC governments and the price he paid for being too outspoken while John Hamm was premier. The interview took place at Mark's home in the Annapolis Valley in August of 2015, almost two years ago to the day that we're releasing this episode. Myself and Louise Cockrum, lead researcher for the Offscript podcast, were there to interview him. Here's our interview with Mark Parent. My first question is, what did you do for a career before you entered politics? I was a Baptist minister and also taught uh, university part-time in religious studies. Okay. And when did you start to get involved in politics? Uh, I was perfectly involved in politics back in Richmond Hill in my first church. I helped the NDP on a federal federal campaign. We won some uh, polls that, that they'd ever won before. When I moved to Kingston, Ontario, Flora McDonald was friends with the church and became friends with her and that's when I became involved very peripherally with the uh, with the, with the Tories but involved with the Tories and then when I moved down here I became involved with the Tories. Okay. Uh, and so when did you become a member of the Tory party? Was it back when you met? Flora? I'm not sure if I was a member when I knew Flora because I was always sort of cautious when you're a minister you know you've got people of all sorts in the church i may have joined back then i certainly was a member here in nova scotia when i moved here in 94 i wasn't really involved when i was in moncton at all 
And so why did you choose the Progressive Conservatives as your, I guess, political home? A large part because of Flora and I think I'm a bit of an idealist here because I look at the what the party's original vision was and they've changed so much. But originally originally you had two visions, one which stressed that you can't have a healthy individual unless you have a healthy community, that the community's prior to the individual. And the other vision, the liberal vision, uh, was that, no, the individual's prior to the community. Well, the old Tory vision was that the community was prior to the individual. That's why the CCF and the NDP and the Tories, in a sense, the old Tories, the, the PC Tories, the Red Tories, shared that same vision that a healthy society was prior to the individual while the the liberal view and the libertarian view that, that Harper has is that no, the individual's primary. Of course, I mean both are important, but it was really where your where your first emphasis fell. And so um with Flora I, I saw that vision of the community first with uh, the compassion for those who are less advantaged and uh, did some reading in George Grant, I don't know the the Canadian philosopher and so, so it just seemed it seemed to fit. The NDP at that time was attracted to the CCF, precursors of the NDP, but the NDP under Lewis, Lewis took the CCF party and changed it into a labor party rather than a, a party that appealed to a broad spectrum of society. And he did that in part because of what was happening in England, but in a part because financially then you had a strong financial base, labor unions. But it lost that organic vision of the whole which uh, the PC party retained until until Harper decimated it. I'm curious, uh, and it's in the news a lot lately uh, because of her passing, but I'm curious uh, if you could maybe share a bit about what it was in Flora's leadership that represented that or how she was embodied that kind of collective before the individual. Well, a, a lot of it's in... in, in, in uh, the way you, you, you govern, that when you're in power, you look at how can I benefit everyone, not just my supporters? Um, what is a vision for the whole that I have rather than just a vision for a certain sector? For example, the, under Reagan, the vision was for the wealthy and then the trickle down to the rest, right? And Harper's not dissimilar from that. But uh, And compassion for the least fortunate. I remember when I was talking to, to Harper, this was the opposition leader, the, there was some talk of me running federally, and, and we met in Halifax, and I said, you know, I think uh, one of the main tasks of government is to care for the less fortunate. And he turned to me and said, well, we'll have to agree to disagree on that. Uh, but Flora had that vision, you know, and she showed it, um, not, not in her roles and in her, in her political, that that power wasn't to be used to benefit one select group but to make the whole the community stronger and she was also a very kind person too and a very intelligent person you know she was a woman in a man's world and did a great job of it Uh, got probably shafted a little bit at the convention against joe clark because of that with the flora factor but i think those were the things that appealed to me as i said the choices were really for me if you start with the community rather than the individual, the choices were CCF or or PC, and the CCF became a labor party appealing and supporting labor unions, which are, labor is very important, but it's just one segment of society, while the PCs seem to, you know, small business, the family, the larger community, you know, the non-profit, churches, social groups, et cetera, all those sorts of things seem to figure in. That's what she exemplified. 
And she was very energetic, a lot of fun, liked to laugh, you know. And uh, I mean, she was what traipsing across Africa in her in her eighties, et cetera. So, you know, she was just a very compelling person that way. Hugh Simpson summed it up today in the Globe and Mail about how there aren't any. I don't know what he called them, but really it's that sense of organic whole, a vision for the whole with compassion for the less fortunate. Now, it could be a bit paternalistic, and that's, you know, that's sort of one of the criticisms of, of, of the Red Tory and of the British Tory tradition that came out, that, you know, those who have are to help those who don't have. So there can be some paternalism involved, and that's what the NDP have been criticized us for. But it's still a vision that appeals to me, so... Anyway, that's, that's there's I'm I'm there in a lot of ways, still there, but it's it's got no party any longer. It's it's sort of I, I was reading the paper today that Flora at the end, according to the the paper, was leaning to the NDP. Some of us are leaning to the Greens, you know. And Elizabeth May herself was was a former Tory, so shares a bit of that vision. But there's really no home. I guess some are in the Liberals for various reasons, but the Liberals, if they're true to their origin, emphasize the individual, you know, Jean Locke and all that wonderful vision, but it was the individual first and then society and the community second. And I don't agree with that. I mean, we're born into community. Communities that's prior families of whatever sort are where we're born into, and then the wider family. And to me, you can't have a healthy individual unless you have a healthy community. And so you don't think there's a home for Victorias in Nova Scotia as well as Well, there's still there's there still is to a certain degree uh, on provincial levels. And Jamie, you know, claims to be a red Tory. But when the merger happened, and there were six meetings across Canada, five, and the one for Atlantic Canada was Halifax, and we had one person speak for the merger and one against. So I spoke against, and out of a hundred votes, four voted against. <laughs> And my, my worry then was that the larger federal party would influence the provincial parties rather than the reverse. And, I, and it's been true, particularly when you have the federal party in power and the provincial party not in power. Maybe if the federal party had been in opposition and the, and the provincial party had been in power, there might have been more. But when, the, when they're in power, the larger party, and so you begin to see that in some of the policies that Jamie's been taking in his talk about justice punishing, you know, instead of rehabilitating, all those sorts of things. So it's there in some provincial parties, but whether it will, you know, if Harper wins another election, I don't think it'll last. If he doesn't, then it might spring back to life at the provincial level. I'm curious, when you got involved in the party here in Nova Scotia, to what degree was that sense of community before the individual prevalent within sort of the, the party ranks? It was, already, it was already starting to change at that time, unbeknownst to me. And that was around what time? That was uh, 99. Uh, I was in for 10 years, 2009. It's already starting to change, in part because of the Harris victory in, in Ontario, and Harris operatives were down here. Uh, unbeknownst to me, never, any, never in my writing, I wouldn't allow any, you know, we'll run our own show. But I think I think John still had a, that vision to a certain extent, John Hamm. But it was already starting to change because of Mike Harris and the influence, of course, from from England, Thatcher, Reagan, and then Mike Harris. I guess was the first one, really, and well, particularly in Ontario, which before that had been Bill Davis territory, which was very progressive conservative. And no, no, we're going to tilt to the right. And so they sent operatives down here, and there began to, I began to see, and the people who were elected to the 
party fairly right wing some of them on on issues of the environment on other issues so it was already starting to change but there was still i think particularly in nova scotia and on all the parties there's still a recognition where small province you have to care for the whole province try and govern for the whole rather than just for your select few but it was starting to change and part of that was the mike harris influence and then after that of course you get you get harper and the reform party coming in so i think that really the heyday of of that sort of progressive conservative movement was in flora's time you know defen baker to a certain degree mo rooney although he certainly had his flaws bill davis in ontario who was there peter lawheed out in alberta those were the by the time i got involved it was changing and i didn't realize the extent of the change or the speed of the change and as i said the currents from thatcher reagan all trickle down theory of economics the sort of division of society rather than looking at the organic whole and caring for the less fortunate that had really begun to change i mean elmer and peter mckay are a good example peter's sister was my executive assistant and i once talked to kellen's very fiercely loyal to the family and she insisted to me that peter had it signed in agreement with orchard even though orchard sent me a copy of it so i had it in writing sorry the agreement was that that if that orchard would support mckay and mckay would not join the parties it was signed i have it yeah i have a copy and Callum would insist Peter didn't sign it but I have it <laughs> anyway so she's seriously loyal but even then she revealed a few things and she said well dad was a public defender and Peter's a public prosecutor she said that explains you know that Elmer defended the poor you know a few of them who are criminals but people by and large would fall in a follow of the law while Peter was prosecuting them and that sort of shift in mentality had happened and I didn't really recognize it but you saw more and more of it coming in. I don't think John Ham had that but certainly supporters of John did and 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 the the Ontario party helped in that 2009 election by sending people down to help campaign so that had an influence. Mm. Okay. And was there a change in the influence uh, I guess rhetory values from John Ham's government to Rodney McDonald's government? Rodney supported Harper when his few supported Harper in his bid for leadership but Rodney I didn't know I, I really didn't see much much shift in that regard in fact Rodney I think was more progressive in some ways than John John was so fixated on a balanced budget which is really important that really everything else sort of fell by the side kind of the, the moment you would have decided to run what was it that led you from being a observer and someone involved in the party was saying it was up to you to to run for the seat of MLA? Um, Well, two things. One, that, you know, I'd done a lot of study and social justice stuff. And when you do that study and you're working in a non-profit, you can influence to a certain degree, but then you think maybe you have more influence if you're actually in the political system. But the other thing was my wife died. And I didn't want to move. I had uh, three teenage kids my wife's buried right around the corner and so i i didn't know what to do but i wanted to do something different than the church because we'd sort of done that together and they asked me to run george george archibald the M- mla who'd helped john ham get in office then fell out with them and at the last minute to sort of spike ham said he's not george said i'm not running any longer because they were fighting and so all of a sudden the, the election was called and they had no candidate so the, they 
you know, I'd been involved on the on the executive, and they said, "Would you run?" So it was more accidental than purposeful at that stage. Had you considered uh, being an elected official? Yeah, I'd considered it. They'd ask, they'd want me to run federally, and I'd considered. But my wife, her father was a conservative. MPP or MLA in Ontario for a, a term under Davis, and she just hated it. So she didn't want anything to do with that. So instead of me running, Scott ran. But we weren't expected to win then anyway, and Scott won and has gone on to quite an interesting career. So that was only about six months before before this other. So there was an interest on my part, but basically it was it was just at that stage, what do I do? And I want to do something different, but I can't move, you know, I don't want to uproot the kids, etc. And I was at the gym and got the phone call, uh, George isn't running, will you run, we'll support you. So so we had a nomination battle, there were three of us, I think, and I won and then went on to win the election, uh, John went on to win the election and we won this riding so, and held it for 10 years, lost it to the NDP by a few votes in the sweep against Rodney and the Tories at that time, and then we won it back. So it's now my neighbor who, who holds it. Uh, John Moore? John, yeah. Can you tell us about the nomination campaign and how that shook out? Well, it was very, it was very, it was very interesting, uh, not having really been involved at that level before. I, I forget the, the nomination was a real whirlwind because you were appealing to the party people at that stage, eh? And ran against David Hovell and Bob Mullen. Bob was a doctor in town who later ran for the federal Tories as well. David worked for the provincial Tories for a while. And David was the front runner. And Bob came in at the end. And on the convention, it was... In the first in the first ballot, I came in first. David came in second. And then Bob threw his supporters to me and... And I won on the second ballot. So, to, quite interesting. But it's it's a, a nomination a nomination battle is different because you're just focusing on the party members who can actually vote. So the list of about 400 members or something that we had, mm-hmm. and you're phoning them, and you know it's a one-on-one, more of an intense personal sort of thing. A few coffee parties I remember and things like that. But mm-hmm. but it, it's 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 very different from the general com- campaign and. To tell you the truth, I can't remember it that well. I remember we, it was at the Kentville Fire, no, the Kentville, yeah, the Kentville Fire, no, the Kentville Legion. And as I said, I came in first on the first vote, but not enough to win it, and then the second one I I won, so. And so um, you finally become the candidate for this writing. What was the election campaign like? It was interesting because we weren't expected to win. The Liberals were in government. We were in third place at that time we weren't even in second place and uh john uh, george had been a tory here so you know you're you're running in a tory area but you're running in third place provincially and so the liberals were able to put a fair amount of of um, effort into writings compared to what the tories were able to do we were basically on our own and uh Basically, I did the traditional door-to-door, and my campaign manager at the time said, listen, you leave the organizing of the campaign up to me. You go door-to-door and and do uh, some of these events. Um, Not that many events, but mainly just door-to-door-to-door-to-door, day after day after day from about 8 in the morning till 6, 7 at night. 
And so it's, it's really grueling, physically grueling. That year, it was really hot. And I remember it was over 100 degrees in, in uh, Kentville in the Meadowview area. And some lady invited me in for a drink, and there was air conditioning, and I was just so grateful. <laughs> but basically, all my campaigns were mainly door-to-door-to-door. To door to door. The last campaign where I was cabinet minister, a little different. You had to do some cabinet stuff in the middle of it. But mainly it was the old traditional door-to-door-to-door. To door to door. We didn't transition to social media as quickly as we should have. We did the old traditional phone bank of local people and the candidate going door to door. So, so the, you know, the riding is a fairly big riding provincially, and sort of get to everybody's house, um, you'd get to maybe 80% of it, but it was a lot of door to door to door to door. And what's it like, uh, I guess, becoming the MLA uh, and transitioning from being a, a church minister to completely yeah well it was it was difficult i didn't realize like i'd always thought the church was a bit held in a bit of disgrace by society but to tell you the truth compared to politics church ministers were held with a lot of respect <laughs> and so you know that sort of where people trusted you to where they you know they had suspicions about you um and 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 for me well, i was trusting everybody where i shouldn't have been you know what i mean like i i I really, I really was very naive and wet behind the ears in a lot of ways, and so it was. It was. It was quite a transition. I tried after the election when I was the, you know, to say, okay, well, the election's over. I'm governing for everybody, and I tried to, tried to treat that way, um, and work that way. the The ethical system was was quite different too, because in uh, politics in church can be pretty nasty too, but. There was always an ethical norm you, you you could appeal to, you know, the Bible or what would Jesus do or anything like that. You had this sort of, okay, would Jesus do that? In politics, there's no real uh, ethical... The ethical norm really is what's going to get us reelected. And, I mean, it, it's it's unfair to... I shouldn't be as, as, as critical as that because there's a lot of people who say they want to do something. And unless you get elected, you can't. Unless you get in power, you can't do it. But because of that very thing, unless you get in power, you can't do it. It almost becomes, getting in power becomes what justifies what you do and whether it's right or wrong. Because that becomes so overriding. And so the ethical norms were very different. On, on smaller issues, I mean, you know, you could have an affair in politics. You know, it would hurt you, but it wouldn't be the, you wouldn't, you wouldn't lose your job while you would in the ministry. But the one thing in politics that they were a little better on ethically than in the ministry was conflict of interest uh, legislation. And, and so you had to learn all about that and what conflict of interest meant. Uh, but by and large, the ethical norms were different. It was far more rough and tumble. You really, in the end, had to say, okay, what's in it for this person? And then you had to color everything that they'd say, whether on your side or on the opposition, through that. And there was a lot of phony play acting in politics you know that getting up and I'm shocked and appalled and all that sort of stuff that I just sound a lot of theater in politics more than in ministry like ministry you think is theatrical you know the guy puts on his robe and you have the service but really in politics the legislature was all just theater just play acting no decisions were made there really 
and that was disappointing. I thought the legislature would be a place where everyone would come around and we'd debate like a debating society and debate ideas and plans and come up with, you know, good policies. For, nah, it's just theater. Just theater. No decisions are made there. You were elected in 99. That was not... You were part of opposition at that time? No, we, we went into government. We went from third place into government. I would have liked to have gone into opposition, and it would have been a good learning experience. Mm-hmm. And John's in opposition. He's sort of lamenting at it. And I said, John, opposition would have been perfect because you've got... Because John's naive, too. You know, he's more right-wing than I am, so probably fits a little better, but still fairly naive about it. This is a good place to learn because the media... The media sort of leave you alone. The media are your friends because they're, by and large, media are, are anti whoever's in power in a sense. So, and if you say something that is untoward, it might not get much coverage. While if you're in government, it does. So, so that that would have been ideal as a good learning school, but instead went right into government. So, and you were in government caucus the whole time for ten years, yeah. And first as a backbencher, and then later. As a cabinet minister, yeah. And what's the experience of backbencher? Backbench is the worst place to be, in my opinion. And see, one of the things that John never really was backbench. He was opposition. And a lot of them had never been backbench in the cabinet. Backbench is the hardest place in the world to be. I'd rather be opposition any day or cabinet. Cabinet's the most fun. Opposition would be second. Backbench is really just, it's like your child, you know. You're to be seen but not heard clap when they're supposed to clap and really very limited influence unless you're willing to speak out like I did but then the price is that you're not going to get into cabinet so backbench is a is a horrible place to be and uh, there's no one I know who's ever been in backbench who's enjoyed it at all you said you spoke out oh yeah I spoke out I mean I never got in cabinet under John so what would you speak out Uh, one of the things that was a big issue then and I wish I'd voted against it I didn't have the guts to do it in the end but the nurses were on strike for salary. John wanted to bring in binding arbitration, not binding arbitration. He wanted to he wanted to bring in arbitration, yeah, arbitration. But where the if they couldn't decide, the government would impose a salary. And I remember thinking, I remember saying this is very unfair. I said, if you take away the right to strike, then you have to have neutral arbitration, not cabinet imposed arbitration. And that was very early on in our tenure. And I led a little group, and we pushed and pushed and pushed and in the end all of us caved except for Cecil who's held firm and I wish I had but I was one of the ringleaders and so never forgiven for that and how is that I guess like if this is a tension between you and the premier uh, at the time is that sort of uh, I guess how do you experience the being never forgiven for that in your your role over the, the years following what we have in Canada right now, in a majority situation by and large, is, is a dictatorship. We don't have the same system as the states, which has a lot of problems, but uh, for the actual elected member, there may be more freedom. In Canada, it's really a dictatorship. The sort of fawning that you see inside politics on the premier or prime minister is just really almost sickening, but it almost has to be that way because they have total control. And not just them, but basically the non-elected officials around them in the office. And, I mean, you've seen that with Duffy, you know, the boys with the short pants. I mean, others have said that. 
really that and i tried to figure out when that transition happened and and you know i they say it happened under trudeau pierre trudeau or after trudeau where really what trudeau's famous saying was an mp is a nobody outside the outside the the hill really but what i found was that we're nobody's in the hill we're actually outside the hill you know when you're in your riding they sort of think that you still have some clout so when that transition took place, I don't really know. But what's happened is that we have dictatorships, by and large, run by a premier and prime minister. There used to be strong cabinet ministers at one stage who stood out, but even that's changed now, where the cabinet ministers who are strong are only strong if they adhere completely to what the prime minister or premier says. So it's it's very frustrating. And it's frustrating because people, by and large, in the riding who've elected you expect you to represent them but really you're not you're representing if you want to progress in your career within with uh, to cabinet etc you know you're representing that rather than your district and if you're lucky the two will come together but most of the time they don't and so it's really very frustrating so what's it like to be a backbencher in caucus meeting? Do you have influence at all in within the caucus meetings? Because I can understand. If you only have influence, basically you, you only have influence if you're going to get other people on side and you're going to pay the price for it. And what is the price? Price is being frozen out of cabinet, being frozen out of... There are other positions which bring in some caucus chair etc bring in extra money etc and you know if if you're really if you're really bad then you're not going to get any projects paving projects many things in your writing too so and is that as an explicit threat or is that just kind of oh sometimes explicit sometimes it's not mostly it's not but every now and then it rises to you're gonna you know the deputy prime minister if you vote against this you're dead meat sort of you know so so it rises to that level. In, in they have more democracy, understand, in Britain, where every vote um, can be a one or two or three stripe. Here are all are three. You have to vote with the government on everything. doesn't matter how inconsequential the legislation is. The only time you might be permitted is on some deep moral issue. Well, it used to be like on abortion, but even now you're not permitted in that regard. And then you wouldn't vote against government. You'd just not be there. You'd be somewhere else at some do that you had to be at. So Canada really, under under uh, majority governments at least, has become a virtual dictatorship. Whether that's good or bad, I don't think it's good. It's certainly not good for the elected members. And I don't think you'll find elected member federally or provincially. I've read all a lot of the exit things. All of them say it's a terrible life. They hate it. They wouldn't do it again. Uh, because it's become a dictatorship. Now, John was a fairly benevolent dictator. Mm. You know. People say that over Cretchen, too. That he's fairly benevolent? Yeah. Well, he may have been. John was. I don't think Harper is. <laughs> I don't think Mulcair will be either, to tell you the truth. I think the stats have shown that Mulcair's caucus is actually more tightly whipped than Harper's caucus over yeah. the last you know, three or four years. Yeah, and I think they've learned that lesson, you know, to get in power. It's so disheartening because people want more, supposedly want more democracy, but they don't elect uh, independents in Canada. It's not a tradition we have. In England, there's certain writings that an independent's the favored, you know. 
I was really naive about the media. You know, they'll want you to speak out because then they have a news story and then they'll pile on you for... So So really, the lesson is you whip your caucus and, and no one gets out of line and then you can get in power. But, but really that power for the elected members, it's, the, the job is not fun, even at the cabinet level. It used to be that, that caucus what, was what cabinet is now. Cabinet now is just a sounding board, basically, not a decision-making board. The decision's all vested in the premier prime minister. It used to be that caucus was the sounding board, you know, and, and you'd take ideas and discuss them, and then cabinet would make those decisions. Cabinet has now become caucus, and caucus has become basically, this is what we want you to do. And in your time in, I guess, John Hamm's uh, caucus first was... You said you spoke up fair bit. Was there ever instances where you would have voted against? No, the one the one I wanted to vote against, I chickened out in the end. That was the one on the nursing bill. The nursing bill. Okay. Yeah. And so it sounds like you probably weren't John Hamm's favorite person in caucus. No, I mean John liked me because he's a, he was a religious person. I was a minister, and I was well educated, and John was well educated, and personally, I think liked me. But no, I was not. I was viewed with great distrust in uh, sort of not playing the party role, you know what I mean? And then it seems like in, uh, under Rodney's premiership, uh, the, I guess that sort of speaking out, history of speaking out wasn't a barrier for you getting into his cabinet. It was at first. Uh, the first time I didn't make it in, which was really odd. I mean, uh, I was, you know, I should have. It was a real slap in the face. And then it was a minority. We ran again, and he had no choice but to put me in. And then what happened was a fortuitous sort of thing is that Rodney had these problems, and there was a vacuum. Nobody had any. And so for a very short time, the environment and, and ministry I held sort of led the charge on everything. And so for a couple of years, we were, we were really... And I had a... the. Deputy Minister for Rodney was a friend of my deputy ministers, and so really, the for about two years there, uh, I really had the fortune of being sort of running the thing because of of Rodney's personal life. Like uh, out in Vancouver, when at a premier's meeting, he had to go home, and I'd represent him as premier. So it was really, it was really sort of fortunate. Near the end of that, they started trying to clamp down on it a little bit, and I was moved from environment to agriculture, which was not a move I wanted. But anyway, that uh, for a while there, there was there was this 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 vacuum, and into the vacuum there had to be some leadership, and and in the premier's office they were grateful that someone was providing leadership. So it was really fortuitous. We passed the. The Environmental Goals and Sustainable Prosperity Act, which was interesting. So it was a, I was fortuitous for then, but it normally wouldn't happen. Normally that would never happen. And I'm curious to ask about the Environmental Goals and Sustainable Prosperity Act, because that is something that I believe was even referenced in the Ivany report as being something that like, is an example of the kind of collaborative leadership uh, from politicians that is necessary. It seems like it had fairly broad political support within the legislature, fairly broad support in the environmental community. Yeah, part of that was, as I said, when you get the civil servants and the political people working together, you can get some really important things done. And my 
cabinet minister, my deputy minister was Bill Leahy, a brilliant man. He's a professor of law now at Dell. And he had good relations with the deputy for economic development, good relations with the, the deputy for uh, the premier's office. And they were able to work together on a vision that integrated the environment and the economy together. And uh, we were able to work with the other parties. It took a bit of, you know, arm twisting and et cetera to get them to come on side, but able to do that. There was this, this wonderful document that was written in government, and when I got in cabinet, I read it. It was on the economy and, and how the economy was based on, on five pillars, and one of them was the natural environment, you know. And, and I said, this is a great document. Why have we never put... Why have we never worked at this as a government? And I said, well, because really, you don't, you know, we don't have political support for it. So the the civil servant were ready. They saw, you know, it was time of Rio. It was time time of um, sustainability. It was time when people realized that you couldn't have a vibrant economy without a vibrant, without caring for the environment. That it was one of the pillars of your economy, and that previously, when you looked at economic goods. For example, even the GDP still does that. Now, you build a prison, and it's an economic gain. You wipe out a forest and turn it into logs, it's an economic gain. You may not have a forest next time. So the, that changed, and people began to realize, no, no, we, the, two, the two need to work together. And the civil servants were all primed for that. And so when I discovered that document, et cetera, and then I, I sort of... And the, then, of course, at the same time, prior to the Ivany report... There had been another report that said, okay, what can Nova Scotia do to prosper? And one of the things they thought was the sort of green economy would be something that we could we could move in. And so there was this recognition across the influential people in society within the cabinet, within the civil service, and then I brought it to cabinet. And as I said, there was a vacuum. And so in a vacuum there was opportunity to say okay well what what's going to be a face of our government what are we going to do that's going to be distinctive how are we going to get the economy going as i said near the end when rodney were sort of recovered his personal life got back on track they started to pull back and retrench into the old familiar sort of well you know we'll get this big terminal up in Port Hawkesbury, that will save us. The big LNG plant, that will save us. And I was saying, no, the, it's going to be it's going to be small projects, not the 200, 300 people where you're pouring all these talks out, but 10, 15. And we had people moving from Vancouver to set up shop here and stuff. And we'd done, of course, the the whole recycling thing that had happened before my time, which had proved that you could make money, and we were exporting our expertise to other countries. So, so. Uh, it was the right time, and it was really a coming together of the civil servant and uh, and, and the, the, the political and, and with the same vision. And when we did that, things got done, even in a minority government. And what was it exactly that the Environmental and Sustainability Prosperity Act achieved and, and legislated? We set a whole bunch of goals. They were aspirational goals in the sense that they were put into legislation, but there was no penalty if you didn't meet them, I guess. So there are a lot of environmental goals. But really, to me, the main thing was, and this is why I've always criticized, I was on the National Roundtable for the Environment and the Economy, and I remember at a meeting in Ottawa, and they asked me if they thought, you know, Harper was a good economist. I said, no, he's crap. 
And they said, well, why do you say that? And I said, because you cannot have a healthy economy without a healthy environment. And Harper's vision was based on the oil sands alone, basically. And we're, seeing the, we're paying the price for it now. You know, he's, he was doubling down on a resource that all the other world is short-selling because they realize that you have to go to renewables, etc. That was, to me, what the main message was. You, I still don't think it got across. And I remember at a cabinet meeting where I explained it and one of the, the finance ministers said, oh, now I sort of see where you're coming from. They all thought it was just, you know, a tree hugger, Mark's the tree hugger, etc. And I couldn't get across them that the two are inextricably connected because prior to that, you hadn't really, under Adam Smith, you'd had capital, you'd had labor, and you had property, right? You didn't have the environment. The environment was a freebie. I mean, you could, you could destroy the environment by producing some product, and your GDP would go up, even though... In the end, you know, you're poisoning the environment. To me, the Environmental Goals and Sustainable Prosperity Act was an emphasis that the two have to go hand in hand. And that Nova Scotia has an opportunity in this new environment, you know, to, to do something innovative. But the jobs will be small. There'll be a lot of them will be over the net, people doing consulting stuff, etc. They won't be the big mega projects that we depended upon in the past. And I think we had some success, but then. You know, a politician stands up and says, well, we got three new jobs here versus we've enticed 300 here. You know, it just so that began to change. But that was the vision. And that was, to me, what's unique. And I, I still agree with that. I, I think that I think we're seeing the economy of Canada suffer because Harper wouldn't didn't have that vision at all. And for him, the vision was Canada based upon export of oil from the oil sands. And I, we're paying the price now, where someone should have been using the oil sands and using to transition, like Norway is, is trying to do, you know. I, I'm not, I, I never said ignore that resource, but use it to transition. I mean, in, I was in Abu Dhabi as the only cabinet minister from Canada, a lowly provincial cabinet minister, for the first international renewables conference they put on. Even in Abu Dhabi, where they had, what, 14% of the oil of the world, uh, they realized we're running out of oil. I mean, Dubai ran out of oil, you know. So they, 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 they said we want to have fourteen percent of the world's renewable resources in the future. So they understood it, but Harper, for some reason, didn't understand it. Didn't care to understand it, and probably never thought that oil would drop down to fifty cents on the on the barrel, fifty dollars on the barrel, etc. Uh, which surprised even me, but. But he 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 was not a good economist in that sense of looking forward to what to what will be the future economy. The future economy is going to have to be different than the past economy. It has to be based on sustainability. And so linking those two together was what that bill was trying to do. Basically, all the other goals, et cetera, were important. You know, wetlands goals, et cetera. Um, all these other goals, we we debated over them. Can we reach them? Are they do they push us far enough, but they're attainable so they're not just pie in the sky? All those sorts of things. But really, it was that o overarching vision. And that's what it was recognized for, I think. And, and that's where we need to go. Now, when, when uh, uh, Daryl came in, he didn't take up that vision. It was all set for him to run with that, and he didn't. I don't know why. Um, and I uh, really haven't been following too much what Stephen's been doing. Mm -hmm. 
but that's I think what was important about it. So you mentioned that it took a bit of work to get cross-party support for the bill. How did you eventually manage to get um, the opposition parties kind of on board to be able to pass it? Well, appealing to a lot of their supporters to put pressure on them, appealing to the public. The NDP were the hardest because they were the official opposition, and of course the official opposition never wants to to go with the government. The Liberals at that time weren't the official opposition, but there was a lot of public support for the environment at that time too. I forget what crisis had had sort of brought it to the fore, uh, but there was a lot of support for that, and so it would have been you know, seen as anti the environment to vote against it. So the Ecology Action Center, people working within the parties, um, the Ecology Action Center was basically NDP, and they won't admit that, but they are. And so they were able to put some pressure on on, on the NDP, but the NDP were really loath because they didn't want to credit the government with anything, in a sense, too. But I think it was basically through the Ecology Action Committee that, through them, that they were, a, they were able to put pressures on the NDP members to support it. That's interesting. Would that have been a, like a conscious decision or, or kind of direction from your department to work through yeah. places like yeah. DC? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. And would, they have, would the EAC have had the sense that that's what your goal was, to get them to work through the other parties as well? or? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was. It was interesting. One of the goals, one of the things, was on on automobile on tailpipe emissions. I forget it. I forget now. But it was something that that Ontario uh, didn't want, and uh, so they sent down people from Ontario to try and uh, from the automobile industry because they're worried if it caught on here, it would. It was based on the California thing, and I was busy. And you know Raymond Poirier uh, or Raymond. Uh, What's the name of the last name? Anyway, he was with the EAC. He was their number one person. He was visiting me at, in the legislature for a second, so I had to run out. I said, hey, Raymond, you tell them why this is so important to do so. <laughs> the EAC were telling me in my place. So, yeah, there was a good partnership there and uh, some good understanding of of each other, even though they would always vote NDP. And so did you, I guess, uh, try and get input? Um, on the bill from the other parties? Yeah, yeah. Okay. You would share it with the critic and, you know, try and get it at a better bill. And that so, would obviously be before you tabled yeah, it and everything. Yeah. Well, you couldn't, you see, in a in a minority government, you would never table a bill unless you knew you were going to pass it or it was some signature bill that you wanted to differentiate yourself from the opposition because in a minority government, unless you have some commitment from one or the other parties to support you, it ain't going to go through. Minorities are very different than majorities in that way. It's interesting, coming back to something you said earlier about kind of the legislature was not the place where the you know the real debate was happening, where real decisions were being made. It almost seems like what you're saying is like even in a minority situation, you had to have those conversations before it got yeah. to the... Yeah, you would have those conversations before you got there. And so when you got there, it would be as I say, theater, uh, where the parties, if they're going to support it, would be positioning themselves to get the maximum benefit out of supporting it. Mm-hmm. You know? 
And you'd be having to, in a minority government, if you wanted the support, to be sort of playing to that a bit. Well, we're so grateful that the opposition, you know, that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. But the decision was made beforehand. Right. And so um, some of the, I guess, other MLAs that we've interviewed have um, said that sometimes speeches in the House are pre-scripted. So their party will say, can you please read out the script? Was that kind of your experience as well? Were you told to read out scripts? I never did that. I, I thought my writing ability was better than theirs, so I refused. Okay, but you were asked. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. They'd, they'd ask you to, and I'd say, no, I'll, I was a better writer than them, and they, they, they knew it, so they gave me a bit of freedom that way. But, you know, a lot of the MLAs, I mean, really, you could become an MLA with a grade 5 education, in a sense. There's no... And some of them came from backgrounds where they hadn't been writing, et cetera. And so, but yeah, you a lot of them were pre-scripted, and and with the radio spots, you know, I'd write my own as well. I'd say, well, what what theme do you want? But most of them, they'd just be written by staff. Okay, you mentioned that you rewrote the scripts, but would you be told to speak? See, I guess, uh, oh yeah, you wouldn't. You wouldn't like say what to say. Yeah, say you were doing a radio thing, and the thing that you wanted to emphasize was we were really good at this, or this bill was important. Yeah, you wouldn't. You'd, you'd write your own words, but you'd still push that position. But at least you'd write your own words and put your own slant on why it might be a good thing versus their slant. Okay, but most true. most people wouldn't do that either for lack of time or lack of interest or lack of ability. And that would be in the legislature as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, one of the frustrating things, I, I always wanted, I wish I'd won one more election because I knew we were going to opposition. I wanted to be in opposition because they'd ask questions. Well, first of all, you never, you know, like there used to be a joke, this is not answer period, it's question period. Very few cabinet ministers would bother to honestly answer. They'd just give the government line and repeat it. I always wanted to answer but they would never pick up on my answer because they were pre-scripted questions too. Do you know what I mean? So then question question one, and even if I'd answered or something and a follow-up would have been appropriate, they would, of course, assume that I wasn't going to answer, so question two had no bearing on my answer. So it was, yeah, so even opposition was pre-scripted like that. Okay. I know uh, watching, uh, it would have been years ago now, but watching... Graham Steele answer questions as a minister, his tactic was always to clarify the question for his first response and say, so what you're asking is like, take all the like attack it instead of it and say this, this, and this, is that what you want? And then they kind of, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then he actually answered and similarly kind of like either makes them kind of look goofy or actually answers the question. And yeah. Cause they were just given the questions and, and uh, so very few happen. So when it does happen, everyone no knows what to do. They just follow through. So it's sort of interesting that way. And so would these be party staffers that would yeah. tell people? Yeah, they'd be writing him. And the party staffers would be told, of course, by the premier's office or the leader's office. It's all top down. And how would you describe the tone of the legislature and the environment? It wasn't respectful. It was kind of childish. It wasn't even funny by and large, you know. Now and then you might have a sense of humor, but you watch some of the British Parliament thing and there's some wit in there, you know. Ours was just name-calling most of it. There was a few times when we rose above that. Not as bad as Ottawa. When I went up to see Ottawa, that was even worse. But no, I mean, you'd have, you'd have teachers come in with their school kids almost 
everyone and walk out and say if our class acted like this, you know. And so in time, I just started ignoring it, and then you'd get caught well. Then the opposition, he's not even listening, and the media would... The media knew it was all theater, too, no decisions were made, but they were part of the theater, so it was sort of frustrating. They'd get after what's-his-name for doing crossword puzzles when the opposition were speaking, as if you know it mattered what the opposition said because it was all preset beforehand. They'd already had the discussions with the opposition, and if it was a, if it was a majority government, they, they'd had told them what we're going to do. The opposition said we're voting against it, so... Whatever, you know, I mean, it was all pre-scripted, but you had to pretend that it was, you had to pretend. And I, that always grated on me because it, it seemed like a pretense, seemed false rather than real. Uh, so, and the behavior in the legislature was not good, but as I said, it was far better provincially than it was federally. But per person, no one came in impressed by the debates. Now and then, in a very blue moon, you might get something where you actually had some interesting debate, but very, very seldom. I, I can't even, I can't remember. I can remember a few times where it was, but most of it's just poor theater. So you mentioned you're not able to remember a time when the debate was... No, I, I remember sometimes. Uh, sometimes you'd get... Everyone had left, and there'd be about three people. It would be, I forget what they called it, but they would debate issues. And sometimes you'd actually get good debates in that. But, of course, the media had gone, everyone else had gone. You'd get maybe two people from each party staying. It was sort of a, what was the name of that? It was a... The late debate? No, I don't think it was the late debate. Maybe it was the late debate. But the, you could get some interesting debates in that, because no one was covering it, no one cared, it didn't deal with anything, basically. But you could get some interesting sort of debates during that time. Maybe it was the late debate. Another question we've been asking folks is, if you were to advise, and a lot of people we've spoken to play this role for people who are considering becoming candidates, if you were advising somebody who's considering running for office or has just become an MLA on things to keep in mind and things to, to do to perform well, what would that advice sound like? Well, I did that with John. I encouraged him to run and you know, helped him win. And basically it was not to make the mistakes I made, which was don't feel you have to speak on everything. You're only going to really have influence on some very small things, so pick what they are, what's important to you. And always care for your riding, put that first, because they're the ones who put you there. So even if you can't vote the way you'd like to when you're in government, at least you can get back to your riding, explain why, and, and don't get... Halifax centered so you forget your writing on some issues you know the media is not your friend which I thought it was and I said you know be very careful they will try and trap you particularly you John you come from a Baptist church background and they'll get you on certain issues so just be really careful what you say don't be untrue to yourself but don't speak out on on issues where you're going to get crucified be wiser than that keep your head down and work hard and don't take too seriously the criticism of the opposition because they're going to oppose you on everything no matter what. You know, take everything with a grain of salt. And remember, even the people in your own party, you've got to be careful. Look, what's some? ask yourself, what's someone's self-interest in that and color them? I mean, Churchill has this wonderful, there's a wonderful story of, of this new MP sitting beside Churchill in the legislature and looking out and saying, ah, oh, isn't it wonderful to, to look out on the, on the enemy and Church said, son, 
that's the opposition the enemy's all around you <laughs> so you know be careful of that too don't piss off the leader and try and work with the leader you know and if you have to work around them do it very carefully and don't the other thing is don't spend your own money and you know don't fund yourself if you can't win with other people's money in elections then don't waste your own money on it but that would only apply because most of the people I'm talking to I didn't have much money as a minister and church minister and he didn't if you're really wealthy I guess it wouldn't matter to you but but uh, people go in and they'll spend a lot of money and lose thinking you know they're going to win so you can't take winning for granted at any stage the electorate's very volatile now and uh, they've changed uh, when I was first in politics they'd come in and if they had a problem and you couldn't help them then they'd get angry 10 years later they're coming in angry at the start you'd have to talk them down and then try and deal with the problem so there's a, a change out there, and there's a change, too, in party allegiances and parties going in and out. And for a while there, we had minorities all the time. And then there's this change where Harper perfected it based on the states where you appeal to a small group and you wedge politics, and you, you actually antagonize people who you don't agree with. So I'd tell them about that and how things have changed etc. Warn them about the legislature, how it can be deadly boring. It's like watching paint dry at times. And to keep their priority on their family because that's what's going to be there after politics is gone. So. That was former MLA, Environment Minister, and Baptist Church Minister Mark Parent. We spoke to him at his home in the Annapolis Valley in August of 2015. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Offscript Podcast. And if you've listened this far, consider becoming a supporter of the podcast. Go to offscript.ca and click on the donate button once you get there. And take a minute and review the podcast over at Apple Podcast. If you're not sure how to do that, stick around after the music fades out and we'll tell you how. It's uh, a couple of steps, so we're just going to talk you through it. Step one, go to Google and search for On The Record off script in Apple Podcasts. It should be the first link that comes up and you can click on that. That'll take you to the on the record off script page by Springtide on Apple Podcasts. Click on view in iTunes. That'll pull up the podcast in your iTunes app right under the name of the podcast. You'll see details, ratings and reviews. Click on ratings and reviews. You can see what other people have written there. And then click to rate if you just want to give it a star rating. And if you want to give us a real hand, click write a review. Tell us what you like about it, what you'd like us to do more of. And of course, we read them all. And it means a lot to us. And the main reason we ask you to do that is because it helps other people find the podcast.